praise a hallelujah. Well, good morning. I'm not going to waste any time this morning. We're going to jump right in. So you know how if I hear one more time anything cheesy about 2020 and us needing a vision, I'm going to scream. But speaking of that, we need a vision. Okay. We don't need a New Year's resolution at all. What you need is a New Year's revelation. Amen? God wants to speak to you. Is He is the question. Are you hearing Him? Does He have something for you? I know that He does. But we get so focused on, I need to lose weight, and I need to do this, and I need to do that. And those are good things. There's nothing wrong with those. But they may or may not be the most important thing that God wants to do for you and I. It's not about having a new idea. It's about being a new creation in Christ. Every time. It's always been that way. So let's not get caught up in the hype. Now that doesn't mean that we don't choose things or look at things and say, hey, I want to implement that in my life because that would be a good thing. We always talk about weight loss. Yeah, You know, it says in the scriptures that physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, both now and in eternity. That's the main thing. We should be making resolutions, so to speak, about those things way more so than the little trivial things that we tend to put into practice. Way more. Heidi and I do pick out certain things that we want to work on uh, every year for the most part. I went, I jogged a half a mile yesterday, can you tell? (laughs) All I can tell you is the U.S. Army used to require a little bit more than what I did yesterday, usually at oh dark 30. But we pick out things. So she said that she wants to complain less this year. That's a good thing. In fact, she coined a phrase I had not heard before. She said, I'm inclined to whine. So you can put that in your books. That was free. And that came from my bride. And I'm like, I like that. I like it. So we should be picking out something that we want to do, but it should be lining up with God's word most. Now, in my case, um, aside from Heidi, she wants to complain less. I just thought to myself, I want to live more of a victorious life. So it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I started thinking about all the different things uh, that might, I don't know, flow into the victory realm or something like that. I, I have to quit giving Satan so much free rent space in my heart and mind. You know what I mean? I just do. So one of the things that I, I want to implement is, is speaking words of life. Like I tend to not do that. I don't know how else to describe that. So, all right, don't fault me. Just hear the end of the story. I was raised in Northern California. I apologize ahead of time. But my father's from Arkansas. My home was not a California home. I can guarantee you that. It was biscuits and gravy, amen, the way God meant it. All right, so, but my dad would say things that are still locked in my brain that I can't undo because I was raised with that. So my dad would say that's stupid. But he didn't say it like that. He's from Arkansas. It had like three S's and four H's. It would say, that's stupid. So I caught on to that, and I say things are stupid, and I fortunately have my kids doing that now. And apparently we've influenced some other families in here too. They're like, that's stupid. And I'm like, that cracks me up in so many ways. But at the same time, 
You know how many things that I find every day that I consider stupid? I see them, usually it's drivers. I don't know why it is. Every now and then you'll hit Walmart or something on a bad day, and you're like, that's stupid too, right? But you're in there and you're, you're trying to get in between the grocery carts and things. And I thought, that is not speaking words of life. It's almost uh, sounding like complaining. Of course there are stupid things out there. But God says not to focus on that. He says whatever's true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable to think about those things. That's living a victorious life. That's what I'm missing out. I want to focus less on circumstances. You know what shocks me every month? Bills. I am surprised every month when I get a bill. Isn't that stupid? But I get irritated over that. I don't like bills. I have to give somebody money. And between that and my kids and shampooing the cat and watering my yucca plant, you know, but at the end of the month, you got $4 left. And you're like, what in the world? And it doesn't seem to matter whether I made 10 grand that month or $20, I end up with a zero balance at the end. I don't like it. But what am I focused on? The things of this world, the things that don't matter, the stupid stuff. I want to focus less on the circumstances and just know that God has my back and has your back. Because he does. He says so. I want to take every thought captive. That one's tough. That one's really tough. I don't think we realize how often, you know, it, it clearly says in James that your motivations lead you here and your thought life leads you here, which leads to sin, which leads to death. So your thought life matters a lot. And we don't think about what we think very often. We don't consider that the thoughts that enter our mind might be from the enemy, or according to James, might just be from you. By the way, stop blaming Satan for everything. 99% of the time, it's you and me, right? It's not him. It's us. When Joseph, you know, a lot of times we'll misquote that verse. It says, what, oh, you know, what, what God meant, or what Satan meant for evil, God meant for good. That is not what that verse says. That is Joseph talking to his brothers. He goes, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. It's not always Satan. Stop giving him too much credit. He doesn't deserve that much credit. He cannot be everywhere at once like God can. It's not Satan. It's you and me, mostly. Occasionally, yes, there's some satanic influence, but usually not. You hear all the time, you just need to follow your heart. No, you don't. It says in Jeremiah 17 that the heart is deceitful above all things. You need to lead your heart, just like I do. That's how you live a victorious life. That's, what, that's not even today's sermon, by the way. Everything I've told you so far was free. It had nothing to do with nothing. We need to lead our hearts. You see the difference between making some crazy resolution at midnight with your buddies that are half drunk as opposed to what does God already tell me in the black and white that I need to do? Those are the things that we need to implement so let's get off. The, if you're going to make a resolution, find something in the scripture that God is specifically poking you in the chest about and make that your resolution and say, you know what, Lord, I believe you're telling me this. This is what I want to work on this year. That's how we should be taking this approach. Speaking of doing what God asks, we at Impact have come up with a theme for the year. We don't have to come up with a theme. We just have, and we do sometimes. And so this one comes out of Zephaniah. And it is going to be our focus for 2020. It says, Zephaniah 3.9, Then I will purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. So 
as we were looking at that, we thought, shoulder to shoulder, what a cool verse. What does that really look like? What does that mean? And I started thinking like, well, if we serve him face to face, like us with each other, it sounds more confrontational. It's not like me picking on you, you picking on me, and we're kind of like in each other's grill a little bit. If we go back to back, it's more along the lines of, hey, I'm in opposition to you, you do your thing, I'll do mine. And I think if I had to, if I had to put my finger on something the way we in here uh, would gravitate toward, it would be that. And I think it's more that, you know, we're out there, we're doing our own thing, our own way, our own agendas. We come in here for a brief moment, and then we go back out and we do our own thing again. And so it's not this togetherness, it's not this shoulder-to-shoulder mentality that the scriptures were just talking about. Um, there are a few of us who do shoulder to shoulder, but I'm talking about collectively, all of us, that we're in this thing together. So as I was thinking about this shoulder to shoulder mentality and where we're going for the year, I thought, oh, gosh, what? what would give us a good depiction of that? And so I came across Nehemiah, so I'll be in Nehemiah chapter 1, um, verses 1 through 4 to start with, and in case you're having a hard time finding it, um, and believe it or not, I've never memorized the books of the Bible. I've memorized lots of verses, and I don't have the books memorized. And you know what? That's okay, because God didn't put them in this order. Man did. So, it's our fault. Just before Job and the Psalms, you'll see the book of Nehemiah. So, to give you a little backdrop, God had been forewarning Israel for hundreds of years to repent. They were doing everything incorrectly according to what he had prescribed for them in the law of Moses. They started jacking around, worshiping idols. The kingdom actually was split into two. Judah being the lower portion, Israel, even though the whole nation is Israel, Israel was known as the northern kingdom, and they weren't listening, weren't listening. Assyria came in and took the northern portion away and deported them and exiled them, Israel. Judah had a chance to repent, and they did not, and later on Nebuchadnezzar came in with the Babylonians, and the Babylonians took the southern kingdom away and took Judah away. And God said, for every Sabbath year that you guys missed and, and messed around, that's how long you're going to be in captivity, which ended up being 70 years. So they started off 70 years with the Babylonians. By then, the Babylonian Empire even switched over to the Persian Empire. So literally, these guys moved from Israel. Now they're in modern-day Iran. Anything going on in Iran lately? That's where they are. That's where they are. Now, at this point, 70 years has gone by, and some of the people are starting to trickle back toward Israel. The Persian king Xerxes is letting them go home, little by little. And as they're working their way back, you have priests coming back, you have leaders, you have certain people, you have some of the poor folk that were already left there that never got deported uh, from the get-go. But that's, that's the scene here for Nehemiah 1, verses 1 through 4. It says, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, again, that's Iran, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. First thing I noticed there about Nehemiah was that he was concerned about his hometown, about his home country, about his people, God's people, God's city. 
God's temple, God's everything. He was so concerned that he mourned and fasted and prayed for several days. When is the last time that you have done that for anything in God's kingdom? I have done some of those, and usually not at the same time. I have mourned before. I have fasted before, and by the way, if you fast without prayer, that's just called a diet. I fasted before, but every time you see fasting in the scripture, it is always combined with prayer. Fasting and prayer. You want to get God to move in your life? Fast and pray. You want him to do a little extra momentum there and get a little extra ump into it? Mourn and fast and pray. That's when God does his biggest moves in our lives, if we do that. I know that on paper. I just don't do it. Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. says, in the month of Nisan, there you go. Just so you know, the Nisans were already in the scripture years ago. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. I'm going to stop right there for a second. This guy has been exiled. He's been there. I don't know if he was born there and raised there or how old he was. But let's just say that he's been there for a while, 50 years, whatever. He could have said, hey, in your face, our Lord is bringing us back to Israel, and you're going to like it. He doesn't do that. He doesn't have that stance. He says, long live the king. That is the difference between living in Babylon and living like a Babylonian. He's there, but he has respect for the king. He has respect for that position, even though this is a heathen king. And he wants nothing to do with God's people and God's city and God's anything to make it better and more holy. He's just allowing him to go back because God is in the middle of changing this guy's heart. So he starts off with, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Come back to that in a second. Then I prayed to the God of heaven. And I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. You know what I like about that? While the king is asking him a question, he's praying to the Lord at the same time. So don't get caught up into the mindset that the only way to pray is to be on your knees with your eyes closed and your hands folded. You can pray all day, every day. In fact, we're, we're told to do that. And he's doing that while he's talking to the king. Some of you, when you're talking to your spouse, are praying as well, right? You should be praying for them, though, not at them. So I love that. This is the, the mindset that Nehemiah has. You see how the things of the Lord are on the forefront of his mind all the time? He lives in a fallen world, but he keeps his eyes on heaven while he's doing it. That's where we're supposed to be. That's what our, our resolutions and our revelations so, should look like. I love what the king asked him in verse 4, though. What is it you want? Have you ever noticed all the time, you know, we were talking about complaining and resolutions and stuff like that, and you'll listen to media, and you'll get on the Internet, and you're looking at everybody's whining, and at the end of it, you still don't know what it is they want. They're just whining. You ever just met people that are just whining for the sake of whining? Because it does so much good in our lives, right? They're just complaining. But I thought, that is a great question. What is it you want? I think God is asking us that question. 
not just as individuals, as a church, as Impact Church. What is it you want? Do you even know? Have you even asked the Lord about that? Has he told you? Because if he's told you, the rest of us would like to know. I want to know what it is that we want collectively, and then I want to know what it is that my family wants, the four of us, and then I want to know what it is that I want, and hopefully those all line up with Scripture first and foremost. What is it that God wants? If you can't answer that question, then it doesn't matter where you aim because you're going to hit it every time. We need to know what it is that God wants. What is his agenda? What is it that he wants done? It's way more than what we've got going on all by ourselves. Chapter 3 goes into great detail as to which group is going to build what section of the wall. So Nehemiah rounds them all up, and he says, all right, this clan and this group, you're going to build this section right here. And so they start building. And then this section is going to be built by these guys, and some of the people lived right there near that part of the, the section of the wall, and so they could just come straight from their house. Other people had no house. They were just literally living by the city walls and hanging out. You know what I liked about it, though? It says that the first section, the first piece of that in chapter 3, it started with the priests. These religious people, right, the ones who had been disobeying God back in the day, the ones who got thrust out of God's um, kingdom to begin with, not out of his kingdom, but out of his country, he thrust them out, and they are the ones that come back, and they aren't afraid to get their hands dirty. There is a time and a place I don't care who you are, what you're doing, where God is calling you to scrub toilets that day. So these guys are the religious leaders, and they're the ones in there that are packing the concrete in the walls. They're the ones that are building it. said they started first. The priests started that. They didn't have that mentality of, well, you know, the Lord spoke to me, and I'm too holy for this kind of work. No, they were getting their hands dirty, very dirty. It goes on to say, in chapter 4, that we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. I didn't even think of this, but when I was backstage a few minutes ago, and I started talking about the wall, somebody's like, you're not going to get political, are you? And I was like, I didn't even think of that. All I can tell you is when Nehemiah and the people were there, you know, they said, it's going to be huge. And the wall, the wall was there. I got political for you for just a second. But the people worked with all their heart. You know why they worked with all their heart? It's because they had buy-in. It's because they saw the need. They could see that God was behind this thing. And they're like, that is an agenda that God obviously wants done or we wouldn't be here. He wouldn't be allowing us to return to Israel at all. So let's jump on that together, all of them. They decided that this was a good thing that God wanted from them. And so that's what they decided to do. So they did it with all their heart. Have you ever noticed, even when you're in the middle of God's will, so you've done these things, you've sought his face, you've asked him the question, what is it he wants? He answers, you're working toward that very thing, and then you reach opposition, and you're like, Lord, I thought you wanted me to do this for you. You clearly made it plain to me. Why is this being difficult? Why are there so many speed bumps in my way? Why does it feel like I'm always driving with the brakes on? Why? And then I start thinking about scriptures, and I'm like, you, I don't know if you guys know that. Do you know that God plans that on purpose? On purpose. And if you get nothing else today, remember that God is planning for your life to be a little difficult. Sometimes you get a lot of difficulty, but he plans on it that way. It says in, uh, oh gosh, where is it? Philippians 129, I think. 
Somebody look that up and tell me if I'm smoking something. Philippians 1.29. It says, It first be granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but to suffer for him. God is telling us ahead of time, I want you to suffer. I have planned you to suffer. That throws me. I don't really have that on my radar as something to pray for. And I don't pray for that, by the way. I figure if God wants to bring it, he will. I'm not praying for that. But it's always, there's always opposition. Moses, he tells Moses ahead of time that you're going to go and you're going to lead these people out of Egypt and Pharaoh is going to give you flack and nobody's going to like it and it's going to be difficult. And Moses is kind of nodding his head like, okay, yeah, I get that on paper until he gets there. And then he's doing all these miraculous signs and Pharaoh's not letting the people go. And it talks about how angry Moses is getting, how frustrated he is. God told him ahead of time it was going to happen, but it shocked him, caught him by surprise. And then, you know, that little scene there where he throws down his staff and it's going to turn into a snake. He's like, watch this. Shapow! He, right? The snake's there and he's like, in your Facebook. And then they throw down their staffs and they turn into snakes. Right at that moment, you know you'd be looking toward heaven like, all right, Lord, that was not in part of the plan. What do you mean there's turned into snakes too? What the heck? Now, granted, his snake swallowed the other snakes. But you know, at that moment, he was like, this is not how this is supposed to pan out. In the life of King David, you see where the prophet Samuel comes and anoints King David. King Saul is still in power, still in place. And the prophet anoints David as the next king of Israel. You know how many years goes by before King David takes the throne? It's 13 years from the time he's anointed. Do you know how hard it would be to live your life like a normal person for 13 years if somebody said for sure, guarantee, you will be the next president of the United States. Can you imagine going to your job and giving a rip about anything that anybody said? about it? You're about to become the most powerful person in the country. And you're like, I'm not making copies for you. <laughs> you know you would think it. I would. 13 years goes by, and by the way, he's not sitting back making copies. He is running for his life the entire time from King Saul, who's trying to kill him. And by the way, King Saul has, has command of all the troops. They're chasing David and mostly his 400 men for 13 years straight before he actually takes the throne. God planned that hardship. He planned that opposition to begin with. And if you need further evidence... Just think of this. Was Jesus 100% in the will of God his entire time on earth? Not even sinning like you and I. 100% in the will of God all day, every day. And then ask yourself this. Did Jesus face opposition at all? Yes, he did. The entire time. Or at least the second he started saying anything about the Lord. Which makes me wonder. I wonder what Jesus was like as a teenager. Can you imagine having a teenager like Jesus? You wake up in the morning and he's already swept the house and done the dishes. You'd be like, something's wrong with that kid. He's the only one in Jerusalem that does that. The only one. I always think of, gee, you know, he doesn't take over his ministry until he's 30 years old. And then I thought, how would you tell Jesus a joke? You're like, two guys walk into a bar. And he's like, I know, it's not that funny. <laughs> Ultimate opposition for Jesus. Back to Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. 
This is some of the opposition that they encounter. But when Sambalat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs of Jerusalem's wall had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. I don't even understand that. Why do they even give a rip? But they did. Have you ever noticed that people just get their nose in everybody else's business and they're just mad to be mad? They're all over the internet. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there's so much trouble that we cannot rebuild the wall. What I'm finding here in the middle of this is he's not only getting opposition from outsiders, now he's getting opposition from his own people. His, the own, his own people in Judah are saying, we can't do this. It's not going to get done. It's going to cost too much. Our labor's given out. This is God's agenda trying to be done here. And these guys are saying, we can't do it. Skip down to verse 15. It says, when our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. So I will will tell you this, when God has an agenda for you and you're doing it and you're facing opposition, and you will, that when you get derailed for a minute, to jump right back on the railroad track and keep plugging along. Don't stay derailed. You're going to face opposition, we know that. But you don't have to stay there. Jesus didn't stay there when things happened. In fact, he never got derailed. But my point is, when you and I get derailed, we don't have to hang out and just set up camp there next to the railroad tracks. If you have been derailed and, let's say, you lost your mojo or whatever it is uh, about what God has spoken to you about, and you're still camped there, why not get back on the tracks and just make a little bit of progress? You don't have to get down to the finish line tomorrow, but you just need to get some traction and get going. There's a sign I used to go to the Snap Fitness over here in uh, Woodland Park, and there's a sign there inside the gym, and it says, no matter how slow you're going, you're making more progress than you would if you are sitting on the couch at home. And I thought, that's true. If I do one curl in there, that's more than I would have got eating unless I was eating Cheetos or something back home on a beanbag, right? Return to the wall. Return to your section. What is your own work? It says each to his own work. Do you know what your section is? Do you know what part of the wall it is that you're supposed to be working on? What is it that God has told you? Do you know your spiritual gift? If you don't, there are free uh, avenues online where you can find out your spiritual gift. And shoot, you got believers in Christ that could tell you too. I have the gift of counseling. Trust me, brother, you do not. That's what the church is for. And it's like, but this thing right here, you're banging on all eight cylinders. Why don't you do that? We need each other for that. Because we often get derailed. Chapter 5 is all about Nehemiah helping the poor and the returnees who were being taken advantage of. See, his own people were coming back, and then somehow they started elevating themselves to position of authority again. They started taking the other people's fields and vineyards and even some of their children and slaving them out and doing this and doing that and loaning people money because, you know, they're trying to rebuild the entire city. But the people are taking advantage of each other to the point where they can't even focus on the day-to-day task on the wall because they're starving at home. We're talking top ramen with no flavor packets, right? Bare minimal. 
And Nehemiah stops what he's doing on the wall and needs to address that, which is very similar to what we sometimes do. You know, we'll invite people to church and we'll do this and that, but we forget these people don't have food and they don't have clothing, and we might need to stop what we're doing and get off our agenda and say, what is, how can I help you stay alive and thrive and be doing A, B, and C, and then we'll start to minister to some of the spiritual aspects of your life. You even see Jesus do that. A lot of times he will, he will show up like at the catacombs and there's a guy running around naked who's, who's possessed by an evil spirit. Well, Jesus doesn't immediately start talking to him about the rivers of life. He has to deliver the guy from the spirits first. So he casts the spirits out. Now you're dealing with a sane person who can even hear what you're saying. It's like trying to minister to a drunk person. Hey, let's get the alcohol out of your system first. This is what Nehemiah is doing. And he's got his focus straight. It says in a Hosea 6.6 6, that I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. So when you get your priorities straight of like, well, what does this sacrifice look like? It's not about going to church. It's not about going to Bible study, although those things help. It's about being God's people and serving and loving one another, loving God first and loving individuals first and foremost. When we do those things, now our priorities are straight. Now we can get to work on the wall. See what I'm saying? If there's an agenda to be done or work to be done outside of those other things, we need to do those first two things first. Then we can come back to our work on the wall. Chapter 6 is more opposition. It talks about how some of these opposing people in the other lands would say, hey, why don't you come out to the plains of Oboe and why don't you meet us? We want to discuss some things with you. And Nehemiah says, I realize that they just wanted to hurt me. And so I didn't go out there at all. That doesn't work. So then they send Nehemiah a letter. You know, they fancy it up, put official seals on it, and say, hey, boom. We know that you guys are planning a revolt. You have a history of revolting against the king of Babylon and now the king of Persia. We know that's what you're planning. And he says that that's not, that's not what's happening at all. Don't even start your garbage, right? In fact, let's see here. Let's look at this. Nehemiah 6, verses 8 and 9. I sent them this reply. Nothing like what you say is happening. You're just making it up out of your head. Have you ever met anybody in your life who just makes stuff up out of their head? That they just thought it. You know, here's a, another free piece. Just because you think it doesn't make it true. And that's coming or going. It doesn't make it true. I have people in my life that think weird things all the time. And I'm like, where did you get that? Now, sometimes it's because of something I said up here. And I'm like, okay, that one I get. That one I get. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will become too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But again, Nehemiah says, but I prayed. Now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. That's a great prayer when you're facing that opposition and when people are making stuff up in their head and when they're saying things about you at work and they're gossiping about you and this and that. You know, it says, don't be surprised when these things are happening to you, that if you're proclaiming the Lord that they hated me, they're going to hate you too. I know that stuff on paper, but when it's happening, you're like, I didn't sign up for this. Yes, you did. I did too. We raised our hand and said, I surrender all, except for that. I surrender all. Right? That's where God wants us. So it says, So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. 
When all of our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. I love that. God had something in mind. He had something that he wanted to accomplish through these returnees, and they were working at it with all their heart. None of this is about the wall. And don't make it political. It's not about the wall itself. God could have rebuilt the wall all by himself, right? He created the heavens and the earth. He could have went, and the wall would have been rebuilt. He could have done that with the city. He could have done it. It's not about what these little agendas that God has going on in our lives, even though he's setting it up. There's something more important at stake. God is always, always more interested in who you and I are becoming and who we are than what it is that we do for the Lord every time. It's about being his people, not just about doing the great things that we think we need to do for the Lord. He has things that he wants us to do. He told his disciples, you're going to do greater works than these. You are going to do greater works than these. So he does have works lined out for us. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. He already has set up all the parameters for us to walk in those things. He wants us to do good works. But in the middle of that, he's more concerned about what's going on right here, right now. How are we going to be the people that God wants us to be? That's what he's most interested in. It's about seeing what God wants done. What's his agenda? You know that, that, that famous prayer in Matthew 6 where it says, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is being done in heaven. God does have an, a will. He does have an agenda. And it's mostly 99.9% about souls. That's his main agenda. I want you to worship me, he says, and I want you to go grab some others and take them with you. Those are the two most important commands that we can possibly follow. And how many times do we get stuck going, oh, I don't know what the Lord wants for my life. Yes, we do. Those are, that's what he wants for our life. Those two things. Let's not get derailed by all the stuff that's going out there in the political world or anything else and gender identity and you name it. And we're getting so wrapped around the axle that we have forgotten what our first love is. We need to pursue these things shoulder to shoulder, whatever they might be. We're not in opposition to each other, and we're not ignoring each other. We're just doing this stuff shoulder to shoulder in the middle of our chaos and in the middle of these things that are difficult because they will be difficult. So let's do this for 2020. Instead of a resolution, ask God for revelation. Ask him for a revelation at the beginning of the year, which is now. Ask him what it is, first and foremost, Lord, what do you want to do in me? What work do I need to have? Now, some of us have multiple issues, right? It's like a whack-a-mole. There's several things going on. Ask the Lord to pinpoint which one is the biggest thing for you to work on as an individual or even as a family, whatever it might be. That's number one. Number two, Lord, what is it that you want to do through me? This is what I want you to do in me, or what is it? And what is it that you want me to do through me? That's where you ask the Lord, Lord, where's my section of the wall? What part of this do I have? 
right? Could be a ministry within impact. It might be something at Compassion International downtown. It could be whatever. You, you have a section of the wall that God has pre-orchestrated for you to walk in it. That's what we need to be focused on. We need to be looking at those things first and foremost. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We don't have to guess at most of it. Some of it we don't know the specifics, Lord. But there's a lot of things in there that you have told us plainly in black and white what it is you want. Would you reveal those things to us this year? May we get a powerful, powerful revelation from you. Not something made up in our own head, Lord, but straight from your word. May it be confirmed by other members of the church. May the Holy Spirit within us give us that confirmation so we know what it is that you want to do in us and through us. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.